The young Methodist preacher was nervous. In fact, he was a nervous wreck. It was his very first sermon at his very first appointment in a little old white frame country church. And it was the first Sunday in Advent on top of all that. And he knew that in this little country church, everybody in the whole area was gonna come to this service to see what the new preacher was like. So he figured the sermon had better be good. He practiced on his wife till she said no mas. He practiced on the dog till he howled. He practiced in the shower. He wanted it virtually memorized so that if he panicked, he'd still remember what he was supposed to be talking about. Well, the day came and he remembered to do all the bishop told him to do. They took up a collection. They said the Lord's Prayer. They said the Apostles' Creed. They sang the right hymns for Advent including, lo, he comes with clouds descending. And then the moment of truth came. He read from the Gospel of John. He got into the pulpit and gripped the pulpit. Now, this pulpit was just sort of hovering right over the first row, and behind it was a sort of runway. And he came up and he gripped the pulpit and said, Behold, I come! And then nothing came. This scared the living daylights out of him. He backed up in the runway, came at the pulpit and said, Behold, I come! And still nothing of the rest of the sermon came. And before he sat down in total humiliation, he said, I'm going to try this one more time. He backed all the way up in the runway, came charging at the pulpit, went straight over the front of the pulpit, landed in the lap of a, a lady on the front row, having said, Behold, I come for the third time. And as he was picking himself up and picking this lady up, he said, Ma'am, I'm ever so sorry. And she said, It's all right, preacher. You done told me three times she was coming. <laughs> there were many prophecies and announcements about the coming of the Savior. John Donne, reflecting on this, said this, "'Twas much that man was made like God long before, created in his image, but that God should be made like man much more." It's that much more we want to reflect on. What is the Christmas season really all about? Is it really about shopping till you drop and eating and drinking till you burst? Is it really primarily about family reunions? Sadly, this is what most of our world thinks. Because we have turned our holy days into mere holidays, and we've focused them on ourselves and not on God. Let me say to you as strongly as I can this morning, Christmas is not about us. It's about God. And more particularly, it's about the God who came down to change the world. It's about incarnation. My grandmother would call that a $25 word. And virginal conception. And we need to think about these things. Emily has read for us this morning the wonderful and powerful text about divine condescension of the Son. When I was young and my Methodist Sunday school teacher used to say things like, be like Jesus, be like Jesus, 
There was a little voice in the back of my impish head which was more than skeptical about that. The back of my head whispered to me, yeah, right. He had a God button. I don't even have an easy button. How in the world am I supposed to be like Jesus? What I did not understand until many years later is both the sacrifice and the divine condescension involved in the Son of God taking on flesh. Philippians says this, while being equal to God, i.e. the Father, he did not take advantage of that fact, but rather emptied himself, kenosis, and took on the very nature of a servant or slave. Charles Wesley, reflecting on this very text, says he emptied himself of all but love. That's probably saying too much, because he didn't leave his divinity behind in heaven. It's not the case that he was God for a while, then human for a while, then God for a while. No, that's not what kenosis is all about. What I take it to mean is that when he took on flesh without leaving his Godhead behind, he accepted limitations of time, space, knowledge, power, and mortality, the natural limitations of being human. He was like us in all respects, save without sin. Or as St. Paul puts it, Jesus who was rich became most poor, so that we who are poor might become rich. Jesus accepted the natural limitations of being human. Yes, he still had a God button. He resisted temptation, both ordinary and supernatural. But what really happened most of his life is he put the omnis on hold. In order to be truly human, he accepted the limitations to be genuinely human means that you're not omniscient, omnipotent, omnibenevolent. You're not merely appearing to be human. Jesus didn't come to look like a human being. He came to be one. There's a reason Paul would later call him the eschatological Adam. He's Adam gone right, Adam without sin, Adam refounding the human race as a man. He was tempted like us in all respects, save without sin. For me, the aha moment came, not just from Philippians 2, but from reading the temptation story in Luke 4. You will notice that Satan doesn't say, if you are the Son of Man, then... No, he says, if you are the divine Son of God, then turn these stones into bread. Now, I have known some mere mortals who could turn bread into stones, but I've never met a sane one who thought they could turn stones into bread. But here's the thing. Jesus still had his divine nature. He could do it. He still had the God button, but he resisted pushing it. Instead, he quoted Scripture. He quoted Scripture three times. 
He picked Deuteronomy, Bill Arnold. He picked Deuteronomy three times. Now, if it had been me, I probably wouldn't have turned to Deuteronomy as my first course of resort when confronted with the nefarious one, the devil. But never mind. Never mind. I noticed this, and I thought, aha, he's resisting temptation using the same resources I have. The Bible, the Word of God. And shoot, I've got far more Bible than Jesus. I got the New Testament. <laughs> Have this mind in yourself that was also in Christ Jesus. Who? Have you ever noticed that in the synoptics it's very clear that Jesus performed his miracles by the Spirit of God? It, it says... If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, he doesn't say, if I cast out demons by my divine nature. No. And this could explain a lot. Because you know what? His disciples, by the Spirit of God, performed the very same miracles. Indeed, Jesus said they would perform even greater miracles. And read the book of Acts. It happened. Wow. Jesus lived resisting temptation by the Word of God and by the Spirit of God, and he performed his ministry that way. But the Son of God's divine condescension didn't just involve accepting limitations of time and space and knowledge and power and mortality. It went even further than that. About that knowledge thing, did you notice in Luke 2, 41 to 52, it says he grew in wisdom? Hello? He grew in wisdom. So must we. Or how about Mark 13, 32? Of that day or hour about the second coming, Jesus says nobody knows, not even the angels in heaven, not even the Son, hello, only the Father. Now when I hear Jesus say infallibly, I don't know, I take it to mean, wait for it, I don't know. As a human being, he had access to the knowledge, but he didn't draw on it. When the woman reached out to touch the hem of his garment, and he said, who touched me? His life was not a charade. He doesn't say, I know she's got red hair, she's been bleeding for 42 years, no doctor in Lexington could help her. No, he says, and I quote, who touched me, by which he meant who touched me. His life was not a human charade pretending to be human. It was genuinely human. And the question is, how do you get somebody who's 100% God and 100% human together? And the answer is divine condescension. Divine condescension. But the greatest condescension came when he was obedient even unto death on the cross. He accepted a death of the lowest of the low. Slaves who were rebellious were executed by crucifixion in a Roman province. He stooped all the way down, accepting the lowest status on earth to lift us all up from below. No pit was so deep that Jesus' love was not deeper still. George MacDonald said this, 
We're, we're, we were all looking for a king to slay our foes and lift us high. Thou camest a little baby thing that made a woman cry. Jesus did not come to meet our expectations. He came to meet our needs. He didn't come to be the kind of Messiah or Savior we all wanted. He came to be the kind of Messiah and Savior we all needed. Truly human, as well as truly divine. And did you notice that none of this happened by accident? The verbs in Philippians 2, 5 and following that apply to the Son are all active verbs. He did not consider. He emptied himself. He took on the very nature of a slave. He uh, was obedient even unto death on the cross. Active verbs. Reflexive verbs. He chose this path. There was not some preordained fate that caused it to happen. He chose this pass. Consider the passive verbs then. This is why God has highly exalted him and given him the name above all names. He didn't exalt himself. God the Father exalted him and gave him the name above all names. And by the way, the name above all names is not Jesus. He already had that one. The name above all names is the name Lord, Kurios, the divine name. He was the risen Lord after the resurrection. He was given God the Father's name from a passage in Isaiah. Now you may say, well, that's all very well for Jesus. Mere mortals don't behave that way. Well, really? Let me tell you a story about a man from Georgia. He was a peanut farmer, a very unlikely candidate to become a person of high political office. And yet he won the governorship, and then he won the presidency of the United States, served only one term in Washington, D.C., <coughs> and when he came home, he went back to teaching Sunday school in his Baptist church and went out to build and help start a movement called Habitat for Humanity. Maybe you've heard of it, because he went out there with hammer and nails and worked away at it. He stooped to be of service even to the poorest of the poor all over this country. After being president, after having the highest office in the land, it is possible for even human beings who are highly exalted to follow the example of Jesus Christ, and he did. He read Bonhoeffer, he read Kierkegaard, he read his Bible, and he followed the example of Jesus. Would that we had more rulers like him. And part of this has to do with God. This story, you know, the virginal conception, I don't call it the virgin birth because the miracle didn't happen at birth. The miracle happened at conception, hence virginal conception. Why was that miracle necessary? I don't really think the main answer has to do with so he could avoid inherited original sin. I don't think that's what this is about. 
I mean, he, he did still get a human nature from Mary. No, I think it has to do with the fact that God was already the Father's Son. He's the only begotten Son of the Father. But in order for him to be fully human, he needed a human mother so he could be the God-man with a heavenly father and an earthly mother. There was a little girl named Rachel in my Sunday school class in England when I was doing my doctoral work. This was a class of, at Christmas of people that were five to eight or nine years old. And Rachel was a bright spark. I was trying to explain the virginal conception to this group. Big task dealing with children. And she raised her hand and said, let me see if I've got this. If God is Jesus' father, wheels turning, and Mary is Jesus' mother, are God and Mary married? And if not, is he illegitimate? You know, that's better questions than I sometimes get in a doctoral seminar. It's the right question. There was a scandal at the beginning of the humanity of Jesus. Such a big scandal that Joseph, a righteous man, resolved to divorce her quietly until divine intervention prevented it. They weren't looking for a virginally conceived Messiah. They were looking for a king to slay their foes and lift them high. He came a little baby thing, the most tender, vulnerable of all human beings, in order to identify with every stage and age of human life. Now, you need to understand that humility was not a virtue in the Greco-Roman world. Uh, it was, in fact, the word to pinofrosune refers to acting in a slavish manner. And this poem, or hymn, in Philippians 2, is all about Jesus not only becoming human, but taking on the behavior of a slave, humbling himself, which is what slaves were supposed to do in relationship to masters. And it says he humbled himself. Now hear me now. If Jesus is the example of humility, then it has nothing to do with feelings of low self-worth. It has nothing to do with an inferiority complex. If the king of the universe humbled himself and became the lowest of the low and took on a slave's death, then humility is the posture of a strong person stepping down to serve others. Let me say that again. Humility is not an attitude about yourself. It's the action of a strong person stepping down, not afraid to identify with the least, the last, and the lost, so that they might become the first, the most, and the found. Jesus stooped to conquer. He served to save. He died to redeem. And there can be no greater condescension than that. The divine Son of God loves us so much that he went through all that to rescue a lost humanity. What wondrous love is this, O oh my soul. 
Maxie Dunham used to say when he was president of this institution in his good Mississippi accent, Ben, God loves you as if he, you are the only one he ever had to love. And even if you were the only human on earth, he would still have come in the person of his son to die for you. Have you ever thought about that? How much love is that? How much love is that? What an example of self-sacrifice, of self-sacrificial service. And did you notice that Jesus is the opposite of a glory grabber? He's a glory giver. He wants you to share in the divine presence. That's what the kavoth is, the divine presence of God. He's a glory giver. The Father glorified the Son, and the Son filled his children with his Spirit. That hymn in Philippians 2 tells us that Christ has set us an example that excludes us engaging in self-glorification. We're supposed to be leaving that to God, as Jesus did. We're supposed to deliberately step down, humble ourselves, and serve others. And the greatest glorification I could ever hope to hear when I finally see Jesus face to face is, well done, good and faithful servant, inherit the kingdom. The gospel involves many paradoxes, none greater than the incarnation. So as we go forward into the Christmas season, I leave you with this poem. The title of the poem is Incognito. He came in incognito, a thinly veiled disguise, the not-so-subtle son of man, a human with God's eyes. The messianic secret left many unawares, a God had walked upon the earth and shared our human cares. We did not see his glory, at least not at first glimpse. It took an Easter wake-up call before it all made sense. The truth of incarnation, of dwelling within flesh, showed goodness in creation and word of God made fresh. Standing on the boundary between earth and heaven above, a Jew who hailed from Nazareth, but came from God's great love. Born of humble parents, installed inside a stall, this king required no entourage, no pomp or falderall. No person was beneath him, no angel or his head. He came to serve the human race to raise it from the dead. His death a great conundrum. How can the deathless die? But if he had not bowed his head, life would have passed us by. Though we are dying to be loved and long for endless life, he was dying in his love and thereby ending strife. Perhaps the incognito belongs to us instead, who play at being human and fail to be gold dust. But there was once a God-man who played the human part and lived and died and rose again, made sin and death depart. 
Yes, now through a glass dimly, we see the visage royal and feebly honor his great worth and his atoning toil. We cannot see his spirit, but moved by its effects, we are inspired to praise his worth and pay our last respects. Yet that too brings him glory, that too makes a start. The journey of a million miles begins within your heart. And someday we shall see him and fully praise his grace. And someday when heaven and earth collide, we'll see him face to face. He comes again in brilliance, a not-so-veiled disguise, the not-so-subtle Son of God, a God with human eyes. Let us pray. Lord, it's difficult, if not impossible, for us to totally comprehend or take in divine condescension. Why should the creator of the universe care so much about each one of us? Why is it true that you loved us so much that you sent your only begotten son into the world because you loved us you didn't send him into the world to condemn us, but to set us free. In this season of Advent and Christmas, may we be set free from all the burdens, from all the guilt, from all the disappointment, from all the anger. May we hear his words, Father, forgive them and apply it to our lives. We ask it in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.